I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 2, Podcast W, The Tempest. The Tempest is the last of the four so-called romances of Shakespeare's final period of work, and the last play he wrote before retiring from the theater, and probably from London, to Stratford. The only early text is that of the first folio. The plot of The Tempest is, so far as we know, Shakespeare's own, though many elements of the play in plot and theme can be traced to a large variety of sources, including Montaigne's essay of Cannibals, around 1580, and Florio's translation of it, 1603, Book Six of Spencer's Fairy Queen, various English and possibly Italian pastoral romances, Ovid's Metamorphoses, Book 7, lines 197 to 209, and Golding's translation of it, 1567, and the Bermuda pamphlets about a 1609 shipwreck on the Bermuda Islands. Specifically, Sylvester Jordan, Discovery of the Bermuda, 1610, Richard Rich, Ballad of News from Virginia, 1610, William Strachey, True Repertory of the Rack, dated 15 July, 1610, first published in Purchase His Pilgrims, 1625, and Council of Virginia, True Declaration of the State of the Colony in Virginia, with a confutation of such scandalous reports as have tended to the disgrace of so worthy an enterprise, 1610. The Tempest, while not explicitly allegorical in a political or historical sense, is in some ways Shakespeare's most mystical play. For one thing, the plot unfolds in the exact same amount of time that the play takes in performance. The now in the theater is the now in the story. And all the action, apart from Prospero's exposition of events of twelve years previously, takes place on an island or on shipboard just off the coast of the island, Act 1, Scene 1. This is an example, unusual in Shakespeare, of an approximation to the classical ideal of the unities of time, place, and action, sharply contrasting with the 16-year gap of time in Shakespeare's immediately previous play, The Winter's Tale. Moreover, the tempest of the title that takes place in the first scene is tied by the language to the tempest on the Sea of Galilee, described in the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 23 and following. It thereby becomes a metaphor for life itself, and for any one person's life, just as the island is a metaphor for the world. I'll discuss this parallel further in a few moments in Key Lime 1. The language of the play in general is Shakespeare's most translucent, the fruits of the poet's nearly three decades of composition and performance. It is both simple and profound, as obedient a medium of the poet's intentions as Ariel is for Prospero. The play weaves together thematically the contrasting principles of nature and art, nature and nurture, outward appearance and inward reality, sin and forgiveness, justice and mercy, sexual desire and chastity, and the limitations of time and space in the context of eternal values. The introduction of white magic in an island world inhabited by two non-human, rational beings raises the simple plot to the level of myth, 
so that the emotional and moral movement of the play carries serious metaphysical implications. Lastly, the epilogue and the applause at its end, as discussed in Session 3 of Chapter 6 in Series 1, unite four levels of meaning in a single speech, much in the manner of the levels of allegory in scriptural interpretation and in Dante's Divine Comedy. The epilogue unites in one experience the roles of character, actor, playwright, and audience. In the third of those roles, that of the playwright, the epilogue has been read, I believe quite reasonably, as Shakespeare's farewell to the stage. The more significant level, however, is that of the audience, whose applause becomes both approval of and participation in the sacrament of forgiveness. As a way of organizing the discussion of this play, I will focus on the characters. In the tempest of the first scene of the play, the character of the characters is revealed. I'll discuss some of the language of the scene in a few moments in the specific note at the end of the podcast. The sailors are striving to fulfill their functions by saving the ship. The king and prince are at prayers, line 53. Gonzalo accepts the will of heaven but keeps hope. Sebastian and Antonio can only curse the seamen who are trying to save their lives. When Antonio says, let's all sink with the king, Sebastian replies, let's take leave of him, lines 63 to 64. Later, in Act 2, Scene 1, Antonio and Sebastian switch roles when Antonio becomes the tempter to evil and Sebastian the tempted. But they are consistent with their characters in this scene in drawing one another toward vice. The bosun speeches convey that the hierarchy of land is temporarily suspended on board ship in a storm. What cares these roarers for the name of king? he asks Gonzalo. And if you can command these elements to silence and work the peace of the present, we will not hand a rope more. Use your authority. Lines 16 to 23. Aboard ship, the authority of king and counselors must submit to the will of the bosun, for in a storm only nautical authority can save the king's life and with it his political authority. Similarly, the authority of Prospero's virtue, seconded by his magic, will oversee the survival of the moral storm in the higher-ranking Alonzo, a storm caused by Alonzo's evil actions of twelve years earlier. The Three Parties on the Island Those shipwrecked on the island are divided into three groups, making three parallel stories in relation to Prospero and unfolding three versions of the same themes. Alonzo, King of Naples, his brother Sebastian, Prospero's brother Antonio, Old Gonzalo, and the other lords form one group. Ferdinand, joined by Miranda, forms the second. Stefano and Trinculo, joined by Caliban, form the third. The three groups must undergo various kinds of transformation on the island, and Prospero's and Ariel's work is not accomplished until those transformations are complete. Alonso must repent. Sebastian and Antonio must be thwarted in their evil designs and forced to submit to virtuous power. Ferdinand and Miranda 
must fall in love, but remain virtuous and temporarily chaste. Stefano and Caliban must learn the unpleasant consequences of self-indulgence and untoward ambition. The good old Lord Gonzalo's virtue serves as a contrast to the corruption of Alonso, Sebastian, and Antonio. The jester Trinculo's simple skepticism contrasts with the folly of Stefano and Caliban. Ferdinand and Miranda Ferdinand's mission is to love rightly, that is, to fall in love with his right match, as he does, and then to restrain his desires until marriage sanctifies the union, as he also does. But he must be tested before trusted, as Prospero says at Act 1, Scene 2, lines 452 to 453, lest too light winning make the prize light. Like Ariel, Ferdinand puts up some manly resistance to apparent tyranny. I will resist such entertainment till mine enemy has more power, lines 466 to 467. But overpowered by Prospero's art, he willingly submits to lowly service in the name of his love. Miranda, whose name means to be wondered at, in her innocence, having known no other man but her father and Caliban, and seeing the handsome Ferdinand for the first time, expresses the belief in the Neoplatonic ideal that outward beauty must express inward virtue. There's nothing ill can dwell in such a temple. If the ill spirit have so fair a house, good things will strive to dwell with it. Lines 458 to 460. Her famous line later, in Act 5, Scene 1, lines 183 to 184, How beauteous mankind is, O brave new world that has such people in it, expressing the same attitude, calls for Prospero's mild correction. Tis new to thee. She is yet to learn, as we have learned from Alonzo, Sebastian, and Antonio, that outward beauty may hide inward ugliness. But despite her innocence, she is not wrong about Ferdinand, whose virtue, by his good will, harmonizes with his outward beauty, as does Miranda's. Caliban will end by refuting the oneness of outward and inward in the opposite way. Whereas for most of the play, his outward ugliness does express his inward vice, by the end, he will seek an inward grace invisible in his outward form. Outward beauty may correspond with inward virtue or not. Outward ugliness may correspond with inward vice or not. What counts is the free will's choice of virtue, whatever the outward show may be. At the end, in Act 5, Scene 1, the lovers are revealed not embracing their mutual outward beauties in lust, but playing intellectually at chess. That they do so to the tune of sweet wrangling must not be misunderstood. Miranda. Sweet Lord, you play me false. Ferdinand. No, my dearest love, I would not for the world. Miranda. Yes, for a score of kings you should wrangle, and I would call it fair play. Lines 172 to 175. She is not actually doubting Ferdinand's honesty or relativizing the concept of fair play. Miranda's pretended accusation of cheating 
leads only to Ferdinand's protestation of love for her and her declaration of faith in him. The apparent conflict, as with opposites fighting a pretended war in the game of chess, is but a game of love, existing only to emphasize how thoroughly the couple is at one. Their sexual gratification will be postponed until their wedding, which will not only unite the two people, but unite their higher and lower natures. The sacrament of marriage redeems the lower desires by raising them into the service and celebration of love. Ariel Ariel is called an airy spirit in the list of characters in the folio. His name, in Hebrew, as the Geneva Bible notes, means Lion of God. But his character and qualities derive not from biblical sources. Ariel is Shakespeare's imaginative composite of traditions about what, in the discarded image, C.S. Lewis calls the longevi, long-lived ones, from the Latin longus, long, and ivum, age, lifetime. Those traditions include a. the great variety of aerial characters in the magical tradition, for example Cornelius Agrippa's occult philosophy and various versions of the Faust legend, themselves influenced by the fallen angels of Christian tradition who came to be known as demons, b. classical stories of nymphs, fauns, dryads, and so on, and c. English folk traditions about fairies of the kind seen in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Though a spirit of air, Ariel has powers to work in the other three elements as well. Act 1, Scene 1, Lines 190-192, and Line 255. Being a spirit, he is unconstrained by the physical world. As Frank Kermode writes in the Arden edition, Ariel can be invoked and indeed maltreated by a goetist like Sycorax, but the theurgist, that is, Prospero, commands him by reason of affinity. A goetist is a sorcerer of the dark arts. A theurgist is a magician of white, meaning natural or sympathetic magic. I'll discuss these concepts further in a few moments when we look at Prospero. What Ariel wants most is his freedom to follow his own whims, and he is promised that by Prospero in return for a short period of labor. Symbolically, Ariel represents that immaterial part of the human being which longs for freedom from all limitations, including the constraints of time, space, and every form of moral and social duty. A part of all of us wants to do what we want. Another part of all of us wants to serve something higher than ourselves. Only in that do we find lasting meaning. Thus, before Ariel can have his desire, he must serve. In return for submission of his will to the higher will of Prospero, he is finally given that freedom to return to his merely elemental being. In this, he is representing the Augustinian principle that perfect freedom lies only in perfect service to God. The promise of freedom inspires Ariel, at Act 1, Scene 2, Lines 299 to 300, to utter his desire to serve in one of the simplest and most moving expressions in all literature. That's my noble master. What shall I do? Say, what? What shall I do? In a moment, I will discuss in Key Line 1 what is here echoed in the word 
master. Caliban. In the character list in the folio, Caliban is called a savage and deformed slave. Each of these words is intended precisely. Savage means merely natural, untutored, wild, and amoral. Deformed means corrupt from the human in both shape and quality, the outward repulsive ugliness figuring his inward vice. That correspondence reflects Miranda's belief in the Neoplatonic idea of correspondence of inner to outer. Slave is the lowest possible condition of the human being because, while God's greatest gift to man is the free will, the slave's will is not his own. Caliban is a slave by nature, that is, appropriate to be a slave because of his character, not because he is enslaved by Prospero. Prospero's enforced restraint on Caliban is but a just form of punishment arising from Caliban's initial vicious behavior toward Miranda. It is the external form of Caliban's enslavement to his own lowest nature, his sense of injured merit, and his lust. His desire to be free from rule is like Ariel's, but the path to freedom he chooses is obedience not to higher will or virtuous master, but to merely natural desire. He attempts to tyrannize over Miranda by raping her, and over the island by killing Prospero, because he himself is tyrannized over by his lower self. One of the great questions of the play is whether such a nature as Caliban's is redeemable through nurture. Caliban is invented in part as an instance in a debate among two traditions about the natural man. As Frank Kermode explains, there were two opposing versions of the natural. On the one hand, that which man corrupts, and on the other, that which is defective and must be mended by cultivation. The reports of the voyagers upon whom Montaigne and Shakespeare both depend tended to describe the natives as purely virtuous or purely vicious. In Montaigne's essay and elsewhere, the merely savage man was thought to be naturally good, corrupted from natural virtue only when he comes under the influence of a fallen civilization. This idea of man is expanded to monstrous proportions with the burgeoning of Romanticism in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. The other attitude is that the merely savage man, unilluminated by civilization and the Christian gospel, must perforce be morally deformed, slavish, and vile. In the former notion, that of Rousseau, all nurture is corruption. In the latter, nurture is redemptive. The two notions are directly debated by Polixenes and Perdita in The Winter's Tale, at Act 4, Scene 4, line 79 to 103. Shakespeare has Caliban representing something of each view. The virtuous Prospero and Miranda at first treat Caliban with humane care, Act 1, Scene 2, lines 345 to 346, and do nothing to corrupt him. Stefano, on the other hand, selfishly abuses Caliban for his own advancement, claiming to be a god and corrupting him with liquor as was reported, notes Kermode, about some Europeans in the West Indies. But well before Stefano appears, Caliban has tried to rape Miranda, and he remains unrepentant despite punishment. 
When he then tries to kill Prospero, he is spoken of by Prospero in his rage as irredeemable, a devil, a born devil, on whose nature nurture can never stick. Act 4, Scene 1, Lines 188 to 189. However, in Act 3, Scene 2, we are given hints of Caliban's potential for redemption in his response to beauty. Be not afeard. The isle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometimes voices that, if I then had waked after long sleep, will make me sleep again, and then, in dreaming, the clouds methought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me, that when I waked, I cried to dream again. Lines 135 to 143. By the end, nurture makes inroads in Caliban's nature once he has experienced the difference between the effects of the rational government of the higher over the lower, Prospero's, and the effects of the irrational government of the lower over the higher, Stephano's. At the end, in Act 5, Scene 1, he movingly observes, I'll be wise hereafter and seek for grace. Lines 295 to 296. Caliban represents the merely natural, physically desiring part of the human being who cannot at first see any value in restraining or channeling his desire in the name of higher values. His submission to Prospero's higher will must be forced. In Caliban's case, nurture must take the form of punishment. But punishment can be merely punitive or purgatorial, depending upon the will of the one punished. Caliban at last benefits from punishment, and his will is shown to be capable of correction thanks to the joining of his will to the grace hidden within the punishment. Thus Shakespeare shows us that the nature-nurture controversy itself may be redeemed by grace. Gonzalo the good old Lord Gonzalo, as Ariel calls him in Act 5, Scene 1, Line 15, quoting Prospero, is known to be good from the beginning. It was he who provided Prospero and the infant Miranda with food, water, clothing, and books. His attitude in the tempest is patient, in the old sense of that word, willing to bear affliction, and hopeful. On the island, he is not included among those condemned by Ariel dressed as a harpy in Act 3, Scene 3. In Act 2, Scene 1, Gonzalo voices a utopian vision of society, and during his exposition of it, he is constantly made fun of by the cynical Antonio and Sebastian. There is a superficial illogic in Gonzalo's vision. As the two carpers point out, he begins by saying, Had I plantation of this isle, my lord, and were the king on it, lines 144 to 146, and later says there would be no sovereignty, line 157. However, we are not to join them in their carping, for Gonzalo's vision, like Ariel's longing for freedom, is a longing in all of us, a life without toil, conflict, the need for trade, laws, riches, or poverty, without any evil, but with all needs and desires provided for by nature. It is an ideal world, a combination of the classical Golden Age, line 169, 
and the biblical Garden of Eden. That vision of Gonzalo is seen against the backdrop of the corrupt societies of Milan and Naples, the fallen world of society, Alonso, Antonio, Sebastian, and Stefano, and nature, Caliban, that Prospero strives to correct. It would be foolish to take Gonzalo's utopian vision as actually possible to achieve, even on an island that provides food and water and is governed by a virtuous master of magic. But it would be equally foolish not to recognize the goodness of the heart that longs for such a world, in contrast with the evil of the hearts that long to murder for power or to rape for pleasure. At the end, in Act 5, Scene 1, it is the good-hearted Gonzalo who recognizes the larger meaning of the tempest and shipwreck. Was Milan thrust from Milan, that is, the duke from the city, that his issue, meaning his offspring, should become kings of Naples? Oh, rejoice beyond a common joy, and set it down with gold on lasting pillars. In one voyage did Clarabel her husband find at Tunis, and Ferdinand, her brother, found a wife where he himself was lost. Prospero his dukedom in a poor isle, and all of us ourselves, when no man was his own. Lines 205 to 213. Life in the world is like a tempest on an island governed invisibly by a benign ruler. Our sufferings may be gifts of grace that draw us toward finding ourselves, which means finding that we belong to ourselves only in the sense that we are called to serve, in virtue, patience, and humility, something beyond ourselves, namely, love in the form of right eros, right obedience, right government of ourselves and of others, right caring for others, and, when necessary, forgiveness of them for their errors. Prospero In the late 1580s, Christopher Marlowe wrote a popular play called Dr. Faustus, about a man who sold his soul to the devil for 24 years of magical power, and then because he would not repent, was hailed off to hell. The Latin word Faustus, from faveo, meaning to favor, help, support, be favorable, means lucky, favorable, auspicious. It is a synonym for the Latin word prosperus, from prospero, meaning according to one's hope, which means fortunate, favorable, lucky, prosperous. As I first heard from the Jungian analyst Robert Kirsch, Shakespeare chose to tell the story of a magician named Prospero as an explicit antithesis to the story of Faustus. Faustus was a goetist, from the Greek goes, sorcerer, that is, a magician commanding evil powers, using what was called black magic. The term black magic was erroneously thought to be derived from the word necromancer, in fact, necromancer comes from the Greek nekros, dead body, and mantia, divination, but it was mistakenly supposed to be derived from the Latin n-i-g-e-r, meaning black. By contrast to the goetist, or black magician, Prospero is a theurgist from the Greek theos, god, and ergos, worker, a miracle, or wonder worker, master of what was called white magic 
with divine approval commanding good metaphysical powers by the force of his own virtue, informed by mystical knowledge. The Church, in medieval times, following St. Augustine, treated both categories as sinful magic. But the Neoplatonic tradition, revived in the Renaissance, preserved the distinction, and Shakespeare makes use of it here. The Tempest has suffered somewhat in modern times because of the misreading of the course Prospero takes through the play. Such misreading has resulted partly from applying anachronistically the distracting screens of recent ideologies related to American slavery and European colonialism. More damaging has been critics' determination to see Prospero as needing moral transformation. It is Alonzo and Caliban, not Prospero, who must be morally transformed in the play. Prospero is virtuous from the beginning to the end. He does, however, have a moment of desperate anger, justified by the attempt on his life by Caliban. And he has a moment of choice, when all his enemies are in his power. But his consistent virtue brings him triumphantly through those moments without any change in his character. The moment of anger comes in Act 4, Scene 1, and evokes Prospero's great speech about the ultimate dissolution of everything. Some have taken that speech as Shakespeare's final word on reality. This is nonsense. Such a reading results from taking the speech out of its context, as misguided as treating the tomorrow speech of the desperate and self-damned Macbeth, in Macbeth Act 5, Scene 5, Lines 19 to 28, as if it were the poet's own final judgment on life. The context here is Prospero's rage at that foul conspiracy of the beast Caliban and his confederates against my life. Act 4, Scene 1, lines 139 to 141. Both Ferdinand and Miranda are startled by Prospero's unusual anger. Ferdinand says, This is strange. Your father's in some passion that works him strongly. Lines 143 to 144. And Miranda says, Never till this day saw I him touched with anger so distempered. Lines 144 to 145. Prospero then says that, like the baseless fabric of this vision, that is the spirit's performance of the mask, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. A rack meaning a wisp of cloud. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Lines 151 to 158. The great globe itself may allude to the globe theatre, in which the play may have been performed after its initial presentation to King James at Whitehall in 1611. This speech, which serves as a kind of memento mori, a reminder that nothing in the created world is eternal, is not the last word of the play. It conveys a common human experience of even the most virtuous, a sudden awareness that our existence and the world's are limited. All worldly things are mutable, and worldly time itself will end, as Christianity and modern science agree. But the dark emptiness of the vision lasts but a moment and passes, 
Such a vision cannot be relevant to the real purpose of human beings living life in the present moment and eternally in the mind of God. Prospero himself says, Sir, I am vexed. Bear with my weakness. My old brain is troubled. Be not disturbed with my infirmity. Lines 158 to 160. In other words, the speech is a sign of temporary infirmity. We are to take it in the context of Prospero's entirely understandable vexation as a moment of weakness, not as a final word. The speech does not represent either a final despair or even a character flaw that needs correcting. It is the way even the wisest might feel when suddenly recalled from celebration to the threat of evil. Prospero's moment of choice is also not a sign of any break in his virtue. When Ariel announces that all his tasks are accomplished and the lords are all either distracted, meaning mad, or mourning over those who are, Act 5, Scene 1, Lines 12 to 13, he and Prospero have the following exchange. Ariel, your charm so strongly works them that if you now beheld them, your affections would become tender. Prospero, dost thou think so, spirit? Ariel, mine would, sir, were I human. Prospero, and mine shall. Line 17 to 20. Ariel's hypothetical sentiment is not schooling Prospero, but bringing out what has been in him all along. Though with their high wrongs I am struck to the quick, yet with my nobler reason, gainst my fury, do I take part. The rarer action is in virtue than in vengeance. They being penitent, the sole drift of my purpose doth extend not a frown further. Lines 24 to 30. This conclusion is not a new moral breakthrough, but a fulfillment. Prospero could never have been the theurgist he is without being virtuous. It is here that the virtue always in him comes through as mercy tempering justice. As Frank Kermode explains, virtue here is Christian virtue, including the virtue of forgiveness, rather than Machiavellian virtu, which would, in an aristocrat, include vengeance. The rarer action is in virtue than in vengeance would be to the Machiavellian Antonio an utterly meaningless phrase. As Antonio says about conscience back in Act 2, Scene 1, lines 276 to 278, I, sir, where lies that? I feel not this deity in my bosom. Like Antonio, Sebastian, Caliban, Sycorax, and Stefano are all devoted to their own self-aggrandizement and power, even at the cost of corrupting their souls with evil. Their opposites are Prospero, Miranda, Ferdinand, and Gonzalo who are filled with love of others and of the good. But then there is a transformation in Prospero. He renounces magic. After a speech that is a close imitation of the passage in Ovid's Metamorphoses, Book 7, lines 197 to 209, in which Medea describes what she has been able to do with her magical art, Prospero says, But this rough magic I hear abjure. I'll break my staff, bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. Lines 50 to 57. Why? 
I have often asked professional actors and my students to ask themselves for what reason, if they had magical powers to stop accidents and floods or to cure diseases and prevent crimes, they would give up those powers. Prospero has used his magic for good, not evil. He has healed his world by disarming the villains, Sebastian, Antonio, and Caliban. He has brought Alonzo to repentance and atonement. He has arranged a perfect marriage for his daughter. Why stop now? Why not go back to govern Milan with magic? After considering what your own answer to this question would be, you may think of Prospero's decision in the following several ways. First, it is through Ariel that Prospero has worked his magic on the island, and Prospero has promised Ariel his freedom. Second, as Lord Acton was later to phrase the idea, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Prospero knows that this supernatural power has been permitted him for the purpose of accomplishing a task at the precise moment when it can be accomplished, the zenith of his fortunes, as he says back in Act 1, Scene 2, Line 181. That task accomplished, he must not keep hold on the tool needed to accomplish it. To do so would imply the very motives of self-aggrandizement and ambition that he has successfully defeated in Alonzo, Sebastian, Antonio, Caliban, and Stefano. Shakespeare is also, I believe, making a parallel between Prospero's art of magic and his own art of theatrical drama, from which he is about to retire. Finally, Shakespeare remains a believing Christian. He recognizes that ultimately the condition of the soul before God must overrule the ambition to master the world that characterizes all magic, whether white or black. What Prospero is renouncing is the goal of extending his power over all things possible, as C.S. Lewis calls it in The Abolition of Man. Prospero knows that power itself is not his purpose or his desire, and to pursue it would be to become Faustus. Dr. Faustus is forced to give up his magic when the devils come to take his soul to hell. Prospero forestalls the temptation that might lead to such an eventuality for him. His renunciation of magic is an explicit rejection of the self-deifying motives of Faustus in favor of retiring to Milan, where every third thought shall be my grave. Act 5, Scene 1, lines 311 to 312. Every third thought simply means often. But one might well imagine that for every Millen thought and every Miranda thought, Prospero will have a memento mori thought. Prospero's renunciation of magic is thus a demonstration of the essential virtue of humility. His virtue, having mastered the art of magic and used it for the good of the world, renounces it for the good of his soul. The spiritual significance of that renunciation is then dramatized in the epilogue, which I have discussed in detail in the third session of Chapter 6 in Series 1, under Unity Joins Us. The end of the epilogue not only concludes the play, but evokes from the audience a moment of approval of and willing participation in the great Christian principle of forgiveness of others as we would be forgiven. Prospero, as himself, 
as the actor playing him and as the playwright inventing him, engages us in the simple gesture of clapping. That momentary theatrical gesture, evoked by the mere words of the magician Shakespeare, becomes a joyful and undeniable incarnation of divine mercy. Now here are six key lines of the play. Key line one. The use of the term master at Act 1, Scene 1, Lines 2 and 12 alludes to the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, here quoted from the Geneva Bible. And when he was entered into the ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, so that the ship was covered with waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came and awoke him, saying, Master, save us, we perish. And he said unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and so there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What man is this, that both the winds and the sea obey him? The tempest here echoes the tempest on the Sea of Galilee, and the master, who appears only here and never again in the play, becomes an image of someone of greater and mysterious power governing events. At various levels of interpretation, a. the invisible captain of the ship, b. Prospero on land, c. Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, and d. God in heaven. Key line 2. Ariel's song in Act 1, Scene 2, lines 397 to 405, provides for Ferdinand a magical consolation for the supposed death of his father. The bones that become coral, the eyes that become pearls, and everything that is sea-changed into something rich and strange evoke a beautiful but mysterious image of the meaning of death, not what we think it is, an image consoling despite the loss. From one point of view, the entire play is a lesson in recognition that a. Things are not what they seem. B. Someone more powerful and with good motives is in charge of them. And C. The ultimate meaning is better than we could have hoped. Gonzalo expresses another version of the same ideas in his speech at Act 5, Scene 1, lines 205 to 213. Key Line 3 When the lords come to land on the island, Gonzalo sees the grass as lush, lusty, and green, Act 2, Scene 1, lines 53 to 54, and their clothes as holding their freshness and glosses being rather new dyed than stained with salt water, lines 63 to 65, and as fresh as when we put them on first in Africa, lines 69 to 70. At the same time, Antonio and Sebastian see the grass as tawny, line 55, meaning dried up, yellow, or brown, and the clothes as ruined, lines 66 to 68, and line 105. The entire passage, as in Act 1, Scene 1, contrasts Gonzalo's positive attitude with the satirical cynicism enjoyed by the villains. The magic of the island thereby reflects to each his own character. This reflection will be made explicit in Ariel's speech as Harpy in Act 3, Scene 3, which I treat next. Key line four. 
the shapes in the stage directions of Act 3, Scene 3, who bring in the banquet and then remove it, are spirits, Ariel's quality, as they're called in Act 1, Scene 2, Line 193, that is, his fellow spirits, his cohorts. They perform a role here, just as they perform the roles of the goddesses Iris, Ceres, and Juno, and of the nymphs and shepherds in Act 4, Scene 1. These are masks, performed by spirits, which Prospero arranges as performances to fulfill his purposes. The latter mask is for the delight and entertainment of the young couple. Here the mask dramatizes the difference between the fruits the lords might enjoy if they practice virtue and the punishments they will suffer if they fail to repent. Ariel's speech as Harpy accuses Alonzo and Antonio of their sin of supplanting Prospero and by implication accuses Antonio and Sebastian of the echoing sin of attempting to murder Alonzo. He proclaims that destiny, fate, the powers, their ministers, and nature itself have turned against the villains because of their sins and will continue to torment them unless they repent, Hart's Sorrow, line 81, and do penance, a clear life ensuing, line 82. Ariel's language here is convoluted in syntax, expressing the strangeness of the vision and the ugliness of the sins until the last line, which offers the lords the better choice in phrases of simple clarity. Key line 5. At Act 5, Scene 1, line 129, Prospero lets Antonio and Sebastian know that he knows of their attempt to kill Alonso. Since they are now disarmed, and know it, he refrains from further punishing them. Sebastian, in keeping with his cynical character at Act 1, Scene 1, and Act 2, Scene 1, says, The devil speaks in him. Prospero offers no argument and no proofs. He simply says, No. From his position, that is all he needs or wants to say. To enter into discussion with Sebastian, would be simply to minister occasion to his negativity, as Gonzalo said at Act 2, Scene 1, Line 173. Prospero's no is also the answer to any suspicion that his magic was of the black variety. Key Line 6 At Act 5, Scene 1, Lines 275 to 276, Prospero says about Caliban, This thing of darkness I acknowledge mine. At one level, this is simply Prospero claiming to be the liege lord of Caliban, as Alonso is that of Stefano and Trinculo. A ruler is in part responsible for the behavior, good or bad, of those whom he rules, and so must know and own these fellows, lines 274 to 275. At another level, however, this thing of darkness is an aspect of every man. The Caliban within us, the lower self, tempted to serve only itself, must be acknowledged in order to be mastered. Only then may it learn to be wise hereafter and seek for grace. Lines 295 to 296. Now here is one specific note to help you in your reading. It is focused on the nautical idioms in the language in Act 1, Scene 1, lines 1 to 35. Line 1 the boatswain, spelled 
B-O-A-T-S-W-A-I-N, is the officer in charge of the physical ship. Line 2. Master means the captain of the ship. Line 3. The good in direct address is probably short for goodman. Yearly means smartly, briskly, hop to it. Line 6. Take in means furl, that is, take down and roll up the sails. Line 8. Room enough means sea room enough, the distance from shore needed to navigate the ship without running it aground. Line 34. Down with the topmast means take down the additional higher and smaller mast that normally extends upward the length of the main mast and supports the topsail. Line 35. Bring her to try with main course means bring the ship around to head into the wind to stop its headway or forward motion called try using the mainsail or mainsail called course. With is probably a contraction, W-I-T-H, T-H apostrophe, that is, with the. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. <laughs>